0: Hello, welcome to this online event at the London School of Economics and Political Science. My name is Minous Shafik, and I'm the director of the school, and I'm very pleased today to welcome Jan Blechley to the LSE today. Jan is a member of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England, where we served together for a while. Prior to this, he was a partner and senior economist at Revan Howard Asset Management and before that he held positions at Deutsche Bank and the Bank of England, including economic assistant to the then governor, Melvin King. Jan has published research on the importance of money, balance sheets, and asset prices in the economy, and he holds a doctorate from the London School of Economics and Political Science, so we're especially proud of him as an alumna. Today is a particularly important because, first, it's the last speech in our public events program for this year at the London School of Economics. But more importantly, it's Jan's final speech as a member of the Monetary Policy Committee. And we're especially honored that he is doing his final speech at his alma mater, LSE. Today, he's going to talk about what we've learned in the last five years about some of the persistent structural drivers of low neutral interest rates such as demographics, debt, and the distribution of income. There has been considerable new research published in these areas, both theoretical and empirical, which explores those drivers, including the extent to which they are linked. And since these developments constrain the available monetary policy space, Jan will consider how monetary policy should be set in a constrained environment, as well as how those constraints could be lifted to ensure the effectiveness of future monetary policy these issues of course are particularly timely given current debates about low for long and whether inflation is back on the horizon for those using twitter in the audience the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE, and this event will be recorded and hopefully made available as a podcast uh, afterwards as usual there'll be a chance to put your questions to jan after this to submit those please use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And uh, the question and answer session will be chaired by my colleague, Professor Roberto Reis. Uh, also, when you put your questions, please let us know your name and affiliation. We're particularly keen to hear from students and alumni around the world. And so with that, let me turn it over to Jan.
1: Thank you, Minush. Uh, thank you, Ricardo. Um, let me share some slides. Uh, Hopefully you should be able to see that. Um, So um, good afternoon, Uh, today's public lecture will be my last, as Minoush said, as an external member of the Monetary Policy Committee, and since my term comes to an end shortly. It's been a privilege to have served on the MPC in the past six years. When I joined the committee, someone made the comment that it might not be that exciting a period in history to do this job because the expectation at the time was that the economy would just continue to recover gradually from the financial crisis and that interest rates would rise very slowly over a number of years. As it turns out, we had Brexit, a US-China trade war and a global pandemic. Policy rates have gone down, up, down again to levels that were not even thought to be on the list of policy options back in 2015. QE has restarted, stopped and restarted again. It's been an action-packed six-year term. I want to extend my thanks to my colleagues on the MPC and to the Bank of England's wonderful staff. These are some of the smartest and most dedicated people I have ever met and it has truly been a pleasure to work with them. In my first speech as an MPC member, I talked about why we had ended up in a low interest rate environment and whether it would last. I argued the following. Structural developments in indebtedness, demographics and the distribution of income, what I called the 3Ds, had resulted in an environment where low interest rates would prevail for years, possibly even decades, even with growth at potential and inflation at target. I suggested two implications. One that we should factor this thinking into our forecasting models, which otherwise would continue to predict rapid growth in activity and prices, which could lead to costly policy mistakes. Two, that when the time comes for tightening policy, we should proceed cautiously, as policy space was asymmetric and the distance to neutral was small. The international experience had shown it was difficult to correct for premature tightening. Today, I want to revisit that topic. I will organize my thoughts along two themes. First, what have we learned since then both in terms of economic theory and empirical evidence about these structural developments. Second, what are the policy implications? As I will shortly no longer be an MPC member, I'll allow myself the freedom to discuss policy implications that go beyond the strict remit of the MPC. Let's talk about demographics first. The key underlying developments in demographics are the fall in the fertility rate and the rise in longevity. Fewer babies and longer lifespans means the population is, on average, getting older. That has been understood for a long time, but a widespread discussion of the macroeconomic implications is far more recent. My focus is on the implication for interest rates, in particular the implication for the neutral interest rate, or R star. By which I mean the interest rate that's expected to prevail when policy is sustainably at potential, sorry, when output is sustainably at potential and inflation is at target. The main insight is that this demographic transition is primarily about desired stocks of assets of the whole population, not about the flow of savings or the savings rate of the old. Once we understand that the sign of the effect of demographics on interest rates is clear. The intuition of many observers, including me some years ago, is that this was a story about old people retiring, about baby boomers. Just before retiring, old people save a lot, so push down on R star. Once they cross the retirement threshold, they become dissavers, so push up on R star. But this is a very partial analysis. What dominates, quantitatively, is not the fact that more old people will soon be crossing the retirement threshold but that a growing share of the population has a higher desired stock of assets to finance their retirement. That will continue for many decades and will, if anything, add further downward pressure on our star relative to today. Chart one shows the average asset holdings of individuals by age. We can see that people accumulate assets as they age and after retirement, They run down assets. This hump-shaped pattern is common across many countries and over time. Crucially, retirees do not run down their asset holdings very quickly. In contrast, people who enter their 50s, for example, hold far more assets than when they were in their 40s. What I will demonstrate is that the latter effect totally dominates the former effect. The additional saving of the middle-aged outweighs the modest dissaving of the retirees. We can combine data on life cycle asset holdings with data on the future age distribution of the population to project forward the level of asset holdings. Chart two shows how the UK age distribution is changing over time. I'm showing three snapshots, 1980, 2020, so today, roughly, and 2060. And we can see that between 1980, which is the gray line, and now the blue line, The biggest change in the age distribution has been a rise in the size of the 30 to 60 age group. We can also see that in the next four decades, the biggest projected rise is in the size of the 60 to 90 age group. Putting it all together, we can project today's assets backwards and forwards using the change in the age structure of the population. Specifically, we can ask the question what the asset holdings look like at some future or past date if the lifecycle profile of individual asset holdings remains constant. This analysis therefore shows us the compositional effect on asset holdings from changes in the age distribution. And this chart three here shows the result. And we can see that starting around 30 years ago, the aging effect started pushing up more rapidly on per capita asset holdings. We can also see that this process is by no means over and is not projected to reverse. In fact, we are only about two thirds of the way through this demographic savings transition. The impact on R star depends somewhat on the extent to which economic agents are forward looking and anticipate this change. But either there is further downward pressure on R star to come or R star simply remains low. There is no upward pressure from demographics soon or in the distant future. I'm showing this calculation for the UK, but a number of research papers have made similar calculations in the past few years for specified, specific advanced economies or aggregates of advanced economies. All lead to the, to the conclusion that the transition is far from over. What is still missing from these models is a distinction between risky and safe assets. There is a good reason for this. Adding a complex portfolio choice to already rich and complex models is really difficult. I certainly don't know how to do it. But a further insight we might gain is to understand the additional effect from the fact that older people hold not only more assets, but more safe assets relative to risky assets. This could explain why we have not observed a uniform fall in all rates of return, as the simple model predicts. But instead, we have observed a fall in risk-free rates of return, while risk premia have been persistent. Next, I want to discuss income inequality. In particular, I want to turn to the macroeconomic effect of rising income inequality, as measured, for example, by the income Gini coefficient or the share of income earned by the top 10% or top 1% of earners. Rising income inequality has been experienced by most advanced economies over the past four decades, and more recently also by many large emerging economies. Let's briefly recall the intuition for the macroeconomic effect of changes in income inequality, which is beautifully simple, yet missing from most standard macro models. Those earning a higher income have a lower marginal propensity to consume. A rise in income inequality means more income earned by those who have a lower marginal propensity to consume. This therefore requires a lower interest rate to maintain aggregate consumption demand. Several papers have been published that integrate this mechanism into a macro model to gauge its quantitative importance. One relatively recent additional feature in the literature is that higher income inequality can ultimately lead to higher wealth inequality which has a bigger effect on our star. This is another case in which the stock effect, in this case, the stock of savings, can be sizable and dominant, but is often less of a focus in standard models because it is technically complex to implement. Like demographics, the changes in wealth distribution are also slow moving, which makes it empirically difficult to unpick their effect. The second insight is that the interaction between income inequality, debt, and risk. Sorry, the second insight is that there is an interaction between income inequality, debt, and risk, which are three factors that I've previously discussed separately, but which have been shown to interact with each other and reinforce each other in powerful ways. The mechanism is as follows those at the top of the income distribution not only have a lower propensity to consume, but they also desire to accumulate more wealth. The higher desired asset holdings push down on our star not just via a higher capital to income ratio, but also via an increase in lending to lower income households. The interest rate falls far enough to encourage lower income households to borrow. In effect, higher higher income inequality looks like a positive credit supply shock for lower income households. The corresponding assets representing this credit to lower income households are held directly or indirectly by the higher income households. In this mechanism, debt is not an independent factor, but rather the endogenous consequence of income inequality. There are multiple channels through which income inequality via higher debt reduces R-star. First is the credit supply effect from the higher demand for assets or conversely, supply of credit, by the higher income households that I've already mentioned. The second effect is a risk effect. Higher debt, in this example higher household debt, makes the economy more fragile, more prone to a financial crisis, even if the debt itself increases welfare for the borrowers by easing a constraint on their investment or durables consumption. That results in a skewed and fat-tailed distribution of future macroeconomic outcomes which leads to a lower risk-free rate while maintaining a high risk premium. The third mechanism is what Mian et al. call an indebted demand effect. Having accumulated debt to fund consumption today, lower income households will need to reduce future demand in order to be able to service the higher debt. And once we combine these ideas with a lower bound on interest rates and therefore an asymmetry in the ability of monetary policy to respond to swings in the business cycle, the risk effect can become larger. Higher debt leads to a higher probability and severity of a crisis and therefore a more skewed and fat-tailed distribution of macroeconomic outcomes. The steady state level of R star will therefore be lower which reduces the space for monetary policy to respond to the crisis. In turn, that means the crisis outcome is likely to be worse, so the distribution of macroeconomic outcomes becomes even more skewed, leading to an even lower level of R star and even less monetary policy space to respond to any future crisis. Low neutral rates mean limited space for cutting the policy rate when the economy needs stimulus. When policy rates were at or near their effective lower bound, or the ELB, the Monetary Policy Committee and many other central banks relied on quantitative easing, QE, to add further stimulus. But even the amount of stimulus provided by quantitative easing ultimately has a limit as well, which arises from two sources. First even long-term yields have a lower bound. Second, the power of QE is highly state dependent. Let me talk about the lower bound on long-term yields first. Whether you think QE works mainly via a persistent portfolio balance effect that reduces risk premium, or if you think, as I do, that it works mainly by lowering future rate expectations and raising inflation expectations back to target, with a powerful temporary liquidity effect in dysfunctional markets, in either case, the persistent effect of QE works by lowering long-term yields. Once long-term yields fall to very low levels, approaching the effective lower bound on policy rates, yields cannot fall much further. Such conditions prevailed in the second half of last year when UK 10-year yields averaged around 0.2%. Additional QE beyond that point does not, in my view, deliver significant additional stimulus because it cannot lower yields significantly further. It's worth spelling this out uh, in detail for a second. The most rigorous argument, which does not rely on any model of QE and risk premia, is a so-called no arbitrage argument. If long-term yields were below the expected lower bound, then you could make a certain profit by borrowing at long-term rates and reinvesting the proceeds at short-term rates. There would be no risk of loss because short-term rates cannot fall any further than they already have. Therefore, long-term yields cannot fall below the lower bound or there would be an arbitrage opportunity. Note that this line of reasoning requires the lower bound to be known and fixed. The argument does not apply exactly when there is a possibility of lowering the lower bound in the future. But in that case, what's driving bond yields lower is not the buying power of QE per se, but speculation about the possibility of lower policy rates in the future. Now let me discuss the state dependence of QE. As I've argued on several previous occasions, the main and persistent effect of QE has come through lower expected real rates keeping inflation expectations anchored, and lowering expected nominal yields by revealing our reaction function at the lower bound. Beyond expectations, I believe QE has a temporary term premium effect. But this temporary term premium effect is much larger during periods of market turmoil than when financial markets are functioning smoothly. This is exactly what the theory predicts. During periods of orderly market functioning, arbitrageurs have sufficient balance sheet capacity to absorb buying and selling flows in financial markets, so that these flows have only a small and short-term effect on the prices of financial instruments. But when arbitrageurs' balance sheets are constrained, for example, when they have suffered losses after a period of sharp declines in the prices of major asset classes, market liquidity is low. And the central bank can have a larger impact on prices by buying bonds and increasing reserves, thereby increasing liquidity. Chart 5 shows, on the vertical axis, the movement in long-term bond yields on the day of major QE announcements by the Bank of England, by the MPC. On the horizontal axis, I show the extent to which the QE announcement was a surprise. The red line illustrates the quantitative impact of QE on market yields based on the first QE program in early 2009. The other dots are various subsequent QE announcements, and I have also separately labeled the March 2020 QE announcement in red. To me, this chart illustrates that the impact of QE on yields is not constant. There were large yield effects from the early 2009 and the March 2020 announcements, but much smaller effects from all the other programs. In fact, if you exclude the early 2009 and March 2020 observations from the sample, the slope of the fitted line through the other QE announcements is close to zero. Chart six illustrates what was special about these two episodes in early 2009 and March 2020. They took place when market functioning was severely disrupted. The other QE announcements took place against the background of relatively smoother market functioning. So this analysis supports the idea that the power of QE is state contingent. It had powerful effects when market functioning was poor, but had much less impact when market functioning was good. This analysis is obviously just based on a few data points, but it also holds in the U.S. And it is exactly the pattern of state dependence that you should expect according to the model of Vianas and Vila, which is the theoretical basis for almost all analysis of QE effects on yields to date, where the impact of any bond supply or demand shocks depend on the risk capacity of arbitrageurs, meaning their capital and risk aversion. I want to draw out three important implications of this preceding discussion for how we should think about QE strategy. First, QE headroom should be measured in basis points, not billions. While QE can help add some stimulus when the policy rate is at the lower bound, once long-term yields fall close to the lower bound as well, additional QE will not lower long-term yields further so will not add further stimulus in well-functioning markets. Second, pace matters. This is a simple general point that should not be controversial. If we buy 1% of the gilt market in one month, we should expect a much larger effect than if we buy 1% over a three-year period. So a faster pace should, other things equal, lead to a larger effect on yields. In addition, Because QE creates reserves, it provides the ultimate source of liquidity to the banking sector. Therefore, when markets are disrupted and aggregate liquidity is low, a fast purchasing pace of QE is particularly powerful. Once market functioning is restored, however, continued purchases at a fast pace are not necessary anymore, and slow purchases likely have little effect, beyond their signalling value that future rate hikes are still some way off. The future stock of QE matters mostly to the extent that it gives an indication of the expected pace of purchases. We could, equivalently, announce a pace directly, an approach taken, for example, by the Federal Reserve and the ECB. My third point on QE strategy is that the presence of the ELB puts even greater emphasis on communicating the policy path. When policy rates can move in either direction, we can, even if imperfectly, show what we mean by direct action. If we want to signal that the economy needs stimulus, we cut rates. But at the effective lower bound, expectations can become de-anchored without guidance and QE revealing our reaction function. Clear communications are equally important when considering any unwind of QE. Small, gradual declines in the central bank balance sheet need not have any tightening effect in well-functioning markets, as long as there is clear communication on the desired future policy stance in order to avoid sending an inadvertent signal that undermines the central bank's intentions. Without such clear communications, even a small balance sheet reduction can result in a meaningful tightening of the policy stance. Having argued that monetary policy headroom for easing is limited and likely to remain limited, as our star is likely to be persistently low, I now want to consider how monetary policy space could be increased. As I am coming to the end of my term as an external MPC member, looking ahead means thinking about a period when I'm not on the MPC anymore. I will permit myself the luxury of also thinking about policies that are not part of the MPC's remit. And our decisions for the government to consider, but could nevertheless increase monetary policy space in the future. Let me be very clear here, I am not recommending any particular policy. Rather, I am providing a list of policies that others, not the MPC, could consider in order to rebuild monetary policy space. These policies are not without risk. But neither is remaining in the status quo with limited monetary policy headroom. As an organizing framework, it's useful to think of monetary policy space for easing as how far we can push real interest rates below their neutral level. So in my first bullet here, lowercase r minus r star. In turn, we can decompose the real rate into a nominal and an inflation component so that the real rate is equal to the nominal rate minus expected inflation. The total policy space is therefore the nominal rate minus expected inflation minus R star. It follows then that the amount of policy space can be increased in exactly three ways. By allowing nominal rates to go lower, by allowing inflation to go higher, and by implementing policies that push our star higher. And let me take these in turn. First, nominal rates. The MPC lowered its assessment of the effective lower bound from 0.5% in 2009 to 0.1% in 2016. In 2021, this year, negative rates were added to the toolbox. I would be comfortable with cutting bank rate to minus a half or even minus three quarters of a percent the next time monetary stimulus is required. This additional space is helpful, but policy space is still limited relative to pre-crisis years. Even though I'm unambiguously in favor of using negative rates the next time the economic outlook requires more stimulus, I also believe that the economic impact of further rate cuts is likely to decline somewhat at lower levels of interest rates, though the impact would still be positive. The key constraint that simultaneously limits how low the policy rate can go and how effective it is at low levels in stimulating the economy is that cash is available as an alternative asset and cash pays zero interest. This zero interest feature of cash is usually described as the cost of holding cash when interest rates are positive. But when interest rates go negative, the zero rate on cash becomes a benefit of holding cash, in effect a subsidy, relative to other assets. The more negative interest rates become, the more attractive cash becomes, potentially leading to a drain on the banking system at some point of either profits or deposits or both which might have a counterproductive effect on the economy at low enough levels of interest rates. However, neither the cost of cash when interest rates are positive nor the subsidy to cash when interest rates are negative are intrinsically desirable features. Rather, they represent a technological constraint, namely that it is rather impractical to either pay or charge <coughs> excuse me, interest on cash. However, as central banks, including the Bank of England, are considering a move to central bank-issued digital currencies, or CBDCs, this constraint can potentially be moved more easily in the future. If digitization becomes sufficiently widespread, so that cash is used much less, this opens up the possibility of having more deeply negative interest rates in the distant future, without causing any negative effect on bank profits, since interest rates on all safe assets would become negative, so banks can maintain their net interest margin, as bank deposits are no less attractive than cash and other negative rates assets. Let me now turn to the second component, which is higher inflation. Higher inflation would create more monetary policy space. This avenue of creating policy space is restricted by the inflation target, which is set by the government. Low and stable inflation is a very good thing, and the inflation targeting framework has served the UK very well. It is, in any case, not for the MPC to question its own remit. But a number of academics have put forward the argument that the inflation target could be revised. Having an inflation target will remain crucial as a nominal anchor, but it might be slightly higher, a slightly higher target than it is today. And the higher target might be permanent, or it might be temporary and conditional on certain circumstances. For example, a temporarily higher target when policy rates approach their effective lower bound. The third component of monetary policy space is the level of the neutral rate itself. Like the inflation target, it is taken as given by the MPC. The MPC has no tools or remit to increase it. But thinking beyond the MPC, policies might be available that increase R star. My discussion of the structural drivers of low R star offers a roadmap here. First, there is demographics. The three key variables here are the birth rate, longevity, and the time spent in retirement pushing up the birth rate simply for the purpose of raising our star seems too radical an option. Jason's changes in the birth rate have only a temporary, though quite persistent, impact on the age profile of the population, but a permanent effect on its growth rate. And higher population growth has other consequences, in particular related to climate change, that are less desirable. Lowering longevity, well, I'm going to rule that out as a policy option for obvious reasons. That leaves us with reducing the time spent in retirement, which should be on the table. Many countries, including the UK, are already slowly raising their retirement age, though it is by no means keeping up with the increase in longevity. The question is whether it can be increased more sooner. There are important distributional consequences that need to be taken into account. Longevity varies significantly with income, for example, and not all jobs are amenable to be carried out by older workers. Nevertheless, one might at least consider removing any policies that compel workers to retire before they want to, and creating incentives so that it is financially attractive for those who are able and willing to work to keep doing so. The increase in the share of part-time work and the flexibility to work from home newly boosted by the pandemic, are likely to be helpful to keep older workers in the labour force for longer. The biggest increase in labour force participation over the past 15 years has been in the 50-64 to age bracket, and the second biggest has been in the over 65 age bracket. We need more of that. Next, we should consider income inequality which I've argued can lead to higher debt and higher wealth inequality over time, developments which are, for many, undesirable in their own right, in addition to the fact that they reduce monetary policy space. What causes income inequality and what policies are available to reduce it? This is a huge topic and I'm not going to do it justice here, but let me sketch just two broad policy areas that are relevant regulatory policy and redistributive taxation. Over the past several decades, many advanced economies have experienced a rise in firm concentration that followed widespread deregulation. This has led to concerns about reduced competition in the product markets that firms sell into and reduced competition in the labor markets that firms buy from. Rising profits, weaker investment, with a rise in spending on lobbying and political influence, and a reduction in wages have been the result. Strong regulatory antitrust legislation and the promotion or facilitation of collective bargaining in labor markets are some of the policies that could help restore the balance of power and therefore the balance of incomes. A second avenue is taxation, including benefits, which economists often refer to as negative taxes. Falling corporate tax rates and falling marginal income tax rates on high incomes, as well as a range of other tax policies, have contributed to rising income inequality since the early 1980s. Flexibility in tax regimes for high income individuals to reclassify income as corporate profits have also played a role. Low inheritance taxes allow income inequality in one generation to become entrenched in future generations. In both regulatory policy and taxation, there is a pendulum that has swung from a high-tax, high-regulation environment to a low-tax, low-regulation environment since the early 1980s. To some extent, that reflected genuine concerns about a stifling environment that impeded growth for all. But one might reasonably argue that the pendulum has swung too far and that the low-tax, low-regulation regime combined with globalization ended up widening income disparities in a way that not only hurt those at the bottom of the income distribution, but ended up having adverse macroeconomic effects. An undesirable high debt and low productivity growth environment that is simultaneously more fragile and reduces the policy space to fix it when it threatens to break. It is not for central bankers to decide any of these measures, but it is for central bankers to point out that this is the fragile macroeconomic environment we have ended up in, and that non-central bank policies exist to improve the situation. None of the options for change are easy or free of risk, but they need to be judged against an increasingly risky and untenable status quo. The time to have this debate is now, when the economy is recovering. It would be a mistake to wait until the next downturn. Let me conclude. I've presented new theoretical and empirical insights from the past few years to support my argument that demographics, debt, and income inequality are important factors in lowering the neutral rate of interest. I argue that we are only about 2 thirds of the way through a multi-decade demographic transition that is affecting interest rates. The higher saving of the middle-aged outweighs the modest dissaving of the retirees. I also summarize some new research that links debt, income inequality, and wealth inequality, and how they interact to lower the neutral rate. The policy implications are even more stark than when I first discussed them nearly six years ago. We have limited headroom for easing monetary policy, so we will not be able to provide monetary stimulus on the same scale as in previous recessions. To address limited monetary easing space, there are three types of policy available. First, changes that enable policy rates to be cut into deeply negative territory. Second, temporarily or permanently higher inflation rates. Third, policies that raise the neutral rate by lowering time spent in retirement or lowering income inequality. None of these policies are within the MPC's remit. These are policies for government to decide. I'm merely pointing out that, without further action, we will remain stuck with limited headroom. This speech has not been about the near-term outlook for the economy. On this, I will be brief. First, even though the expected peak in inflation now looks higher than previously expected, I have not changed my view that this inflation peak is likely to be temporary. It is driven by supply bottlenecks and base effects, both of which are set to wane next year. Second, we are not out of the woods yet in terms of the virus and the impact on the economy. Yes, the economy has been growing rapidly, but on the most recent data, it remains an average recession away from full employment. Monthly GDP in May was 4.5% below its pre-COVID level. The unemployment rate in May was one percentage point above its pre-COVID level, to which we can add an inactivity rate that was a further one percentage point above its pre-COVID level, and 1.3 million jobs remained fully or partially on furlough at the end of June. The Delta variant is still causing health and economic damage, both in the UK and in the rest of the world, in a way that risks feeding back to the UK economically. Third, various government support schemes are coming to an end including the all-important furlough scheme. I would want to see how the economy copes with that before adding monetary tightening on top of fiscal tightening. For all these reasons, I think it will remain appropriate to keep the current monetary stimulus in place for several quarters at least and probably longer. And when tightening does become appropriate, I suspect not much of it will be needed given the low level of the neutral rate. Thank you very much. I'm happy to answer your questions.
2: Well, thank you very much, Jan. This was really a stimulating um, speech that really brought together so many topics that have been uh, at the core of the challenges facing the Bank of England, as well as of the research that many have done, including the Center for Macroeconomics. Uh, Just to introduce myself, my name is Ricardo Gheiz, and I'm the director of the Center for Macroeconomics here at the LSE, which is hosting this. So it will be my honor to field some of the questions. And I'm gonna start with a question from myself combined with a question from the audience. And that is, Jan, I mean, I'm very much, and also in my own research, I've moved in your direction of thinking that QE should be communicated in terms of basis points, in terms of long-term yields rather than quantities. But how do you do that effectively without doing yield curve control, without saying that we're actually targeting a a level of it? Uh, And let me, that was my question, let me combine that with Graham Douglas, who also then asks, Well, when we do enter some tightening cycle, in light of what you just said, how do you think about the question of do we start tightening by shrinking the balance sheet, or do we start by balance sheet unwinding? And so Jan, take that. We have many questions, by the way. So if you can keep them short, we can cover many.
1: I'll I'll try. So um, yield curve control, I mean, it's a reasonable question. If you say that it works primarily through yields, then why not specify the level? the difficulty for me with the yield curve control is that um, even though at a particular point in the cycle, we may be trying to lower uh, the level of yields. Um, and you know we could even specify, I, I suppose, you know, a number of basis points at that particular point in time, um, but that is not a level that we would expect to prevail for a long time. As a matter of fact, the more successful the QE the more economic um, activity is going to recover and expectations of future economic activity is going to recover that's going to lead to a higher level of real interest rates in the future and that's going to lead to inflation expectations which were possibly depressed at the time we do qe to, r- to rise back to a level consistent with the target soon after and so it's entirely possible to do qe and for that to be followed by an increase in long-term interest rates if the qe is entirely successful and indeed you can see that in several previous episodes and for those reasons you just can't specify an anchor um, that will be consistent with your target for a very long time because it's likely to change even at, at high frequency Second, um, second leads to a question about how do you think about uh, qe and rates and a tightening strategy um i'm not going to talk about that other than to say uh we, uh, we, the MPC, announced that we would review that uh, back in February, and we're gonna come out with the results of that review soon. And I, I don't want to talk about that before we've published it for everyone to see.
2: Fantastic, let me ask two more questions together from Thomas Lasky and Hassad Hikbal. Going to the uh, effects on R-STAR, uh, they both point to the fact that our, some of the stories having to do with R-STAR, not the story, the theories and the evidence, has to do with it being a global factor and deals with not just the aging who saves, who borrows, but also the fact that some regions are saving and some are borrowing. And that has been a big part of the story of the last 20 years. So, so how does that fit into your story, especially as we look forward in terms of changes in the growth rates uh, in different regions of the world and how that will evolve over the next decade or two?
1: Um, a couple of things on that. So first, uh, of course, global developments matter, um, but, I would push back against the idea that only global developments matter. You know That requires an extraordinarily high level of financial market integration to say that it's only the sum of all the effects as opposed to the individual country effects. And so individual country effects still matter a lot too. And you indeed see um, that different countries have very different levels of real rates for persistent periods of time uh, driven by their own uh, domestic uh, factors. That's one. The second thing is, I think it is very interesting to point out that all these, for example, these demographic effects and also the inequality effects that I talk about, um, they are happening in a very large share of the world, all at the same time. Uh, especially if you weight that by GDP, uh, which ultimately, for the purpose of asset holdings, is a is a is a really important. Uh, waiting. And so I think it's likely to have a bigger effect if it's happening in more countries, uh, which is the case. Um, And I also think that individual level uh, country drivers still matter.
2: Great. Now, Tomasz Wildek asking about uh, our staff from the perspective not of savings, but of investment and pointing to insofar as we are doing this transition towards a net zero economy. And that will arguably require a lot of investment in many countries, to what extent do you think that the green transition will have an effect on our star now working from the investment side, which you didn't speak as much, as opposed to the saving side in which, which you emphasized?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a reasonable point. Uh, I think we have a long way to go to analyze the macroeconomics of, uh, of climate change. You know, So far, the research has been very focused on you know, what if there's this risk of something really cataclysmic happening in many decades? How should you think about that in terms of reaction today? But as governments move to these net zero targets, uh, we're going to see much more macroeconomic change now in the next few years. Um, and, and I do agree that as an isolated mechanism, the need to replace potentially some part of the capital stock, you know, replace brown with green, so to speak, is going to require very high rates of investment. And that might, um, as an isolated effect, push our star up. I don't know by how much, but let me also point out that at the same time there will be a lot of uncertainty about you know which are the technologies that we're going to need more of which are the technologies that we're going to need less of uh, and that kind of uncertainty about you know my betting on the winning horse here uh, in the green transition is going to cause a lot of uncertainty which of course goes precisely in the other direction and so i think the net effect of an economy where climate change is driven is driving current macroeconomic trends is not clear whether that's up or down and requires a lot more work
2: Fantastic. Um, next question from Anthony Vallion, uh, moving towards now the latter part of your speech. Um, you mentioned raising the retirement age and more working from home. Um, Anthony asks about uh, the fact that recruiters tend to favor youth as opposed to older workers uh, for a variety of reasons. Do you have any thoughts on the extent to which there will be a barrier to the, such that the reforms you're proposing may not end up being all that effective, Or just more general to what extent do you think that uh, recruiters can value people over 50s and over 60s in a way that eases the policy that you were
1: suggesting i'm not sure i have many many practical things to suggest so you know what i had in mind is certainly you should remove all you know legal and fiscal barriers to people working a long time i think the uk has gone uh, probably further than uh, than uh, many countries in that uh, about a decade ago, we abolished uh, the idea of a mandatory retirement age, which was a great move. Uh, there are more things that you can do, but there is also a, a much kind of more difficult but softer aspect of this, which is just to get people used to the idea that it's completely normal to keep working in your late 60s and your early 70s, even late 70s. Um, and, and that's a more difficult thing to do, which requires a change of culture, which is going to take a, take a long time.
2: And um, mm-hmm. again, following in this train in the sequence of your talk, uh, Frank Curtis asks about what you think there about a wealth tax in terms of the economics, he asks about the politics, but I'd rather you focus on the economics of what a wealth tax. How would it factor into discussion of our star that you did? Would it raise it? Would it lower it? Would it be kind of
1: productive or not? Um- so the, the way that I that I talked about it, which is, you know, through the lens of a, a handful of very specific models and you know some of these conclusions might not survive if we tackle it in different ways. But if you think of income inequality as being you know the primitive the 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 true the true underlying driver then income inequality ultimately leads to wealth inequality um, and that then has a bigger effect on our star you can have a, a one off reduction in wealth inequality through wealth taxation which may be a, a useful thing to do to correct some uh, some past uh, imbalances but if you want to affect it on an ongoing basis then you either need to keep doing it or you need to change the problem at source which is to fix the the income inequality
2: okay uh, let's go back to qe because there's quite a few questions on qe one question from moyin hislam is to what extent do you think that QE asset purchase program should be cash neutral to the extent in the sense that buying equal amounts of guilds across maturity baskets? Um, more generally, how should we think about gearing the maturity structure of QE? You spoke uh, quite eloquently about how you think QE works, how it doesn't work, how interacts with our star. But of course, you're speaking very much of there's a long run and there's a short run in between, there's lots of maturities. How do you think central banks should think generally about optimizing the maturity of their purchases if they want QE to be massively effective and or to deal with the low R-star problem that you raised?
1: So I think the the objective that we've used so far, uh, which is entirely reasonable, is that we don't want to create any particular distortions uh, by you know, focusing on some very isolated points uh, on the yield curve, which... You know if we were to buy a lot on that particular point m- might influence that point more than others but it's not clear that it would have a useful macroeconomic effect from doing that and so this sort of absence of distortion i think will will be will continue to be a a, a useful a useful guidepost. the other thing to think about is you know in this story about the power of qe is state contingent and depends on on market liquidity um we want to improve liquidity at at various points when it is severely disrupted. We also don't want to impede liquidity at points of the yield curve where there are even in normal market times, there are not that many transactions. And if we come in brute force and buy a large amount of bonds, that might actually hurt things rather than, than improve things. So it, it's not um, I don't think you can put rules of thumb on it to say shorter term is always better or longer term is always better. It depends on market conditions both the you know the cyclical part of it and the sort of permanent part who is active in which points of the on the yield curve
2: got it one question from Arya petra on uh, do you therefore don't think that qe is partly working through liquidity of banks if you want just by increasing the amount of deposits banks have the central bank you seem to speak very much about the signaling channel um there was a liquidity channel in your talk, but it was liquidity of the bond markets. You think the banks play a particular role in terms of how QE works or not? Um, um,
1: no, no, I, I do. And, and, you know, I, I try to kind of summarize, you know, bits of my thinking on QE that I've elaborated much more on in previous speeches. And certainly the banking system is a, a very important part. And I, I referenced reserves several times. And that when financial markets are dysfunctional, it's in part because you know a big part of the arbitrageurs or the market makers, when their balance sheets are not in good shape, then they can't help absorb the buying and selling flows as well as they would uh, in other times. And providing reserves to the banking system in those circumstances can be very powerful. I guess what I would lean against a little bit is the idea that that's some sort of constant thing, that you know more reserves is always more stimulative. At some point. They just uh, they just sit there. It's more than banks need. You know we're in an ample reserve requirements. Um, uh, we're in an ample reserves environment, and so you know pushing much further on something which is already beyond the constraint, I don't think has that much of an effect. And so that's how I would distinguish the importance of reserves.
2: Very good. Now I'm going to collect three questions which I think are expressed differently but are getting at something similar, which is. Um, one person, this is coming from Malcolm McAdam, who's asking about whether QE is into a Japanification, Japanification of Europe or the UK. Patrick Flynn asking about whether QE has led to a credit-driven economy that comes with poor growth. And then there was a third one, which now I lost. That was asking about whether QE. Oh, Robert Farago. Which is whether about well with negative yields nothing's really safe uh, insofar as people start searching for yield i would combine all three to the extent that to what extent do you think that very stimulative policies of which qe is i um, i'd say more of a representative rather than the only one have pushed not just nominal but real yields persistently below and is that does that come with side effects that? Um, such as potentially a search for yield and increasing risk in financial markets or Japanification. I don't know exactly what we'll mean by that, but anyway. Um, but to what extent that can leave some scars in the economy and how do you weigh those, um, those scars if, they, if, they,
1: if you think they exist? So um, I've, t- I've talked about this before. And I think for, for myself, I'm very clear in my own mind that the direction of causality here is that, you know, bad stuff happens to the world monetary policy response to that by matching the low real interest rates that the world requires uh, or even lowering a little bit uh, below that in order to stimulate the economy um, back to its, its pre-crisis state. The causality does not go in the direction of uh, QE causes Japanification um, or QE causes the, uh, the credit growth. And let me just uh, highlight two things in particular. So if you thought that it was low rates that were causing the problem, then um, we actually had a little bit of post-financial crisis experimentation. We had a number of central banks that tried to raise rates quite soon after the financial crisis was over. If you thought that low rates were the problem, then you would see those countries that raise rates sooner outperform. Instead, what happened is a few years later, they were forced to cut rates again to even lower levels than, uh, than uh, where they had started from after the financial crisis. So I think that goes squarely against the idea that it was the level of rates that was the problem. The level of rates were responding to an, an economic problem. And then the second point about this credit-driven growth is uh, it, I, I didn't have time to talk about it here, but there's a chart in my speech, chart four, I think, that shows that uh, both for the UK and the US Uh, the ratio of credit to GDP had been coming down steadily or stabilizing um, after the financial crisis. And so the idea that we were driving credit up is just not consistent with the data because for several years after the financial crisis, despite loss of QE, despite very low interest rates, uh, the level of credit relative to GDP was falling, not rising.
2: Now, let me combine here two questions, one from Alan Doon and one from one of our dear alumni. Sushilwadwani, and they both have to do with fiscal policy. So I'm going to switch you a little bit fiscal policy on and then we'll come back with some more on central banking before concluding. And so Alan raises the issue of, well, to what extent, given precise demographic, the demographic profile, as well as occur from the pandemic, well, could more fiscal stimulus measures under the current circumstances actually lead to more asset accumulation that hurts more or well, not hurts, but certainly pushes more R star down as opposed to stimuli. And Sushil asks, likewise, well, to what extent do I think that um, if we change attitudes towards the level of the public debt and fiscal deficits, to what extent we may even have a public debt crisis, can that in itself affect our start in the opposite way from, let's say, a very plain vanilla idea of fiscal stimulus as being definitely a way to stimulate the they can, or to make it shorter. Do you think that a fiscal stimulus, given precisely just the environment you discussed, so in the context of our star, can it actually backfire by either leading to more savings by the rich and or to more concerns about the public debt or not that affect our star in some or other directions?
1: So the, the, the precise economic answer would be, you know, it depends on who you think is going to be taxed in the future uh, in order to pay for this. And, and you know, if you tax the kind of people who have very high marginal propensities to consume in the future, then, yeah, you may well make it worse. But if you end up taxing people with low marginal propensities to consume, then you can actually improve things currently. Uh, so that's the distinction I would make. And then on, on this idea about, well, too much debt at some point, does it risk pushing up our star? Um, Yes, there is a limit where you know people think, okay, now there is no credible um, fiscal policy of any kind that can put debt back on a sustainable trajectory, um, and theoretically, that that limit exists. And and I guess some countries, not the UK, have in in past episodes uh, come close to that. Um, it, it's a I I don't know is the honest answer how high the debt limit is. I observed that lots of countries have gone to 100 percent of gdp advanced economies and even well above it uh, and there is absolutely no sign that people are starting to worry about the sustainability um, as a matter of fact this is happening in an environment where long-term real interest rates are so low that even though debt is you know it's not that record highs in the uk by any means but it's sort of maybe record peacetime highs uh, the service burden for that debt is actually near all-time lows uh, and so it is It is not causing undue pressure uh, on the government's finances to be able to service that that current rate.
2: Fantastic. I'm going to ask just one last question. I think we're 30 seconds over, Jan, but I'll abuse your generosity because I think it will be a nice way to wrap both a little bit of the spirit of your talk as well as many of the questions. And this is Jamie Ross who asks, um, to what extent, reflecting a little bit the concerns that you raised, um, Paul Tucker, a former MPC member as yourself, Uh, once, uh, um, or not once, but several times referred to the fact that central banks have started being seen as the only game in town. And that makes things quite hard, but as well as leads to danger in the future. You've already mentioned this in your speech, as you conclude with lots of policies that non-central banks should do. But I think, especially given the many different questions you got, we're very representative of this. I mean, in a sense, you're being asked about wealth taxes and this and that, which are definitely not something a central bank is about. But more generally, more broadly, how dangerous have you felt that is this view that the central bank has to fix everything? How much have you felt or do you think that going forward, um, really, it's other policies that have to take much more of the burden of the adjustment, um, given what you said? And I think that would be a nice way for you to not just answer that, but if you want to bring together a little bit of the things that have come. In this talk. Uh,
1: sure, I think that is a nice way to, to wrap things up, because you know exactly as, as many people have used that phrase about central banks are the only game in town. And I think it was a reasonable description of the period, I don't know, roughly 2010 to 2015 or something like that, uh, when there was quite a bit of uh, fiscal austerity and central banks were putting their sort of pedal to the metal, if you you will, uh, to try and offset that. And since then, there have been quite a few people, including me, who have said that's not a good way to think about macroeconomic policy in general. You might want to have a slightly more even distribution between uh, the the counter cyclical (coughs) stimulus provided by fiscal policy and provided by monetary policy. Uh, And I think thinking has moved away from that only game in town because people realize it wasn't a good idea. And also it was causing monetary policy to be stuck at or near its its lower bound. And that's not a place where, where we'd like to be. I would also say though, that in the response of the pandemic, uh, we already saw quite a different balance between monetary and fiscal policy. So you know, fiscal policy did do the heavy lifting during the pandemic, uh, both because monetary policy you know, was much closer to its constraint than fiscal policy, but also because it had this very unusual, highly unevenly distributed impact on the economy, for which fiscal policy is much better placed because it can be much more targeted towards the people who need it, whereas monetary policy only can spread uh, the stimulus evenly across the economy. So I think. You know, in practice, we've already moved away from this only game in town, as evidenced by the response to the pandemic. What I would say is we need to keep thinking in that direction for future business cycles as well.
2: Fantastic. Well, it, we're four minutes over now, but uh, this was really very stimulating. I think we could have gone for much longer. I mean, there's almost 20 questions still open that I couldn't get to. Uh, but that just proves how stimulating that your speech was and how many talks you, topics you cover that are really of fundamental importance uh for macro stability over the next few years and really just for the developments of the global economy we've come to the end it's my duty and job uh although with some sadness to um to say farewell to everyone on my name personally from my name from Manu Shafiq uh as well as from the LSE and the Center for Macroeconomics um thank you Jan for your service to the country by serving in the monetary policy committee we still As an LSE alum, I can speak for the LSE and saying we still expect great things from you, even if you've already accomplished many. Uh, And we hope that you, as well as many of of the other alums that are in these talks, um, to uh, come back to uh, the mothership often and regularly and help us understand better the economy and generally make um, the economy a better place with the contribution of knowledge, research and hard thinking. So thank you very much, Jan. I'll leave you one last sentence if you want. And with that, we will conclude.
1: Uh, thank you, Ricardo. And thank you to the LSC for hosting this event. Uh, it's been uh, a pleasure uh, to do it today and, and also just to think about these things over the past six years and to communicate with everyone. And uh, I, I look forward to continuing to be part of the debate, even if not as an MPC member. Thanks. Thank you,
2: everyone. Goodbye. Have a good, lovely afternoon or evening or morning wherever you are.